With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Emma Sassick's interview with the co-writer for the Oscar-nominated film Maestro, Josh Singer, and Dan Baer's interview with the Oscar-nominated cinematographer, Matthew Libatique. Oh, that's, uh, 12. No. <laughs> Six. No. Eight. Can you try, just call Maybe I should train. stop and think for a second. You should stop and think, because I am sending it to you. 20. No. <laughs> so how long do we have to do this for? Well, we need to build up a very strong connection. I'm sure it's been a very busy, fun, crazy past few weeks for you. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, a little tired, if I'm being honest. I'm but, sure. Uh, but ever grateful. Yes, I um, I mean, I see the post poster right behind you. I know you've you've done and won for a spotlight. Uh, so you've been busy these last few years, but I'm I'm sure it's always a good time for you to be, you know, writing and crafting up such incredible stories. I've been really lucky. I've been really lucky to work with really great directors. Um, and those collaborations have been just uh, really extraordinary. And frankly, um, you know, that that's to me the best part of this business is when you meet someone who inspires you, who you get to work with. Look, I've been very fortunate to collaborate with, with wonderful visionary directors. Um, and um you know, I, I put Bradley right on right on the line with Tom McCarthy and Stephen and Damien, you know, uh, Chazelle. And, and, and to me, you know, he shares a lot uh, with, you know, he's got, you know, the uncompromising passion that Tommy has. He's got the insane work ethic that uh, that Damien has. <laughs> and he has the extraordinary vision that 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 Stephen has. Um, and um and so it's really been a, a, a joy to work with him over these past five years. I can imagine. I mean, I know that it's been a long time coming with this film, as I've read yeah. through, through yeah. interviews that Bradley himself has shared. And then also, you know, Carrie um, and yourself, I can imagine the labor of love and maybe labor of stress <laughs> that <laughs> these last five, six years have brought. But I mean, it's it's a great achievement. Huge, huge congratulations. I've seen the film twice. Um, I got to see oh, it at true. the... I got to see it at the premiere in Los Angeles at the AFI Film Festival in like yeah. the the most gorgeous space you can watch a film, which is the Chinese theater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for yourself to, I'm not sure if you were in attendance. Uh, I was that, there. Okay. How is it for yourself to see something that you have worked on for so long projected in a space like the Chinese theater? You know, it's, it's, it's funny because part of it is the projection. Part of it is, is the, is the, is what you hear, right? I had a friend who saw, uh, they, they just redid the Smithsonian, the, the, the theater at the, um, uh, at the museum of, 
uh, it's like the Amstud Museum at the Smithsonian. It's not called okay. Amstud. Mm-hmm. So it's from my college days. But it's actually <laughs> the 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 maybe it's the Museum of American History. It's the one where you know Dorothy's shoes are and you know and Indiana Jones's hat. And they just redid the 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 theater down there. Dolby redid it mm-hmm. um, to make it full on. Um, you know, uh, to give it the full great sound. Um, uh, and uh, I had a buddy who came and watched it and was like, that was the best way I can think of to enjoy a Leonard Bernstein concert. Uh. Um, and that's sort of how I feel. You know, one of the things I'm incredibly proud of is the music. Um, we, you know, I, I've been on this for almost 10 years and and a large part of that odyssey has been getting to know Lenny's music because all I really knew was West Side Story and maybe a little bit of On the Town. Mm-hmm. And so getting to learn his three symphonies and his multiple ballets and, you know, and all of the wonderful, you know, show music, not to mention getting much more acquainted with Mahler and Beethoven uh, through Lenny uh, has been just kind of a wonderful music education. Um, And beyond that, like, you know, as Lenny once said to a protege of his, um, I like his music, you know, like, you know, and, and I think what's wonderful and, and, you know, Bradley and I always, you know, wanted to see if we could, you know, bring back classical music in a big way, but also, you know, bring back Lenny's music specifically. And we always imagined that, you know, the score would be all Lenny. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love about it is, and I think it's the best score this year, even though it's not, <laughs> not competing, uh, <laughs> because it all feels connected because Lenny's music all sort of felt of a piece. It all felt like Lenny. Um, and yet it's got all these different, you know, interesting moments, you know, Lenny would do these great bombastic, you know, from the Candide Overture to, you know, on the town to these quiet, you know, he used to sit and he, 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 he wrote these piano anniversaries, which you just sit Mm -hmm. and like tinkle at the piano. And one of them, the anniversary for Felicia, actually, we have the orchestrated version and that's in the film. Um, and so it really sort of spans the gamut of, of, of Lenny's work. Um, and in that way, I think, you know, gives you an oral portrait of him as mm-hmm. well as the, you know, as well as anything that we're doing with the script or the or the visuals. Mm-hmm. I used to play the violin for 10 years. So oh, I'm, really? always, I'm always so appreciative of films that dive into music in whether it's from the composer conductor standpoint. Yeah, yeah. We had this film, we had Tar last year. I kind, I'm kind of loving this conductor renaissance that we're getting. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But, you know, for yourself, um, you said you were a little bit familiar with him. Was it is it a little daunting to, you know, go into a project like this where you really have to immerse yourself in this man's life? I know it's not that traditional biopic um, yeah, because yeah. it's focused on the marriage, but obviously there are parts of his career that are still intertwined in this story. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because the way uh, and in some ways, so it's incredibly daunting, right? I mean, <laughs> so it's funny I have because I was doing research for about something that was written. I have the Burton Burton book, you know, and you'll see it's all pretty well marked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is the 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 sort of Bible, right? It's sort of the definitive biography of him, which is not easy to read. It's like an encyclopedia. It's not just uh, to, you know, James Hansen book on uh, Neil Armstrong, which is also a wonderful encyclopedia, but it really is kind of that. And um, and so what's great with Lenny is there are all these other books, right? There's Findings, which is the book, you know, it's sort of his sort of memoir. There's the Letters book. 
there was a book called The Private World of Leonard Bernstein. There was, uh, you know, uh, Jamie put out a book, Famous Father Girl, which was incredibly useful. Like, and there's all the audio and video. So it was incredibly daunting on the one hand. Um, but, you know, you could always go, oh, go read that book and then come back to the encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. And the encyclopedia is where, you know, this is this is where all the all the you know, if I want to check facts on anything, it's in here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but all the other books sort of give you slightly different insight. Um, you know, and for me, in fact, you know, so I signed on this 10 years ago, Fred, friend Berner and Amy Durning uh, came to me and said, Marty Scorsese was interested in maybe directing. And um, and for me, I was always terrified of the back half of his life, in mm. part because it gets so dark and in part yeah. because like this is a thick book. And if I only do up to where he turns 40, it's just the first half. right? <laughs> you know? And so my first scripts were really all about the ascent. Right. It's all about how he, you know, has this great debut in 43 and then wanders around a little bit. He does fancy free and on the town and is like out of a cannon, but then sort of because tells him no musical theater. And so he tries to stick to that and wanders around and doesn't really find a, he doesn't get a podium. He sort of is, you know, is, is a guest conductor all over and is famous, but is not really, doesn't really have his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he marries Felicia and suddenly it grounds him and, you know, you know, opens him up to write Wonderful Town and Candide and West Side Story and do omnibus and young people's concerts and then literally take over the Philharmonic in 57. That's where I ended, right? I was like, just that, like, and it was really about him struggling between conducting and composing with Felicia. Felicia is sort of our B story, an important B story, but our B story. Mm -hmm. And and um, and it was a very clever script, but it didn't really have heart. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what Stephen, when he, you know, Stephen, who loved the script, you know, but was really like, where's the heart and where's Lenny in this? And we couldn't really find it. In fact, the kids didn't even love the script, mm -hmm. um, which was part of the reason why we almost lost the rights. But then Bradley came along. And on the one hand, it was sort of challenging because he said, you know, page one rewrite, we're going to start from scratch, which was you know, <laughs> on the script for a long time by that point. But on the other hand, he had a real vision, which was he focused on this one book, The Private World of Leonard Bernstein, which was all about Lenny at 50 in Italy, mm -hmm. um, which was beyond. I hadn't read the back half of the book. You, were, right? you could not deal with that. I, I wasn't there. And, and he was just he got very interested in Lenny's downward spiral. You know, when he tried to leave Felicia and found he couldn't and then she dies and then he's a mess and, and he was totally there. And as I got more and more intrigued, you know, and I, I was racing to keep up with him. Mm -hmm. And this book, The Private World of Leonard Bernstein, is right at the precipice when he's 50 mm -hmm. and he's now stepping down from the harmonica because he wants to compose. And he's really struggling and, and she's struggling, too. And that wound up becoming our story. Right. And 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 Bradley very quickly said, this is a story of a marriage. Like, that's what's universal and interesting here. And of course, it's interesting because Leonard Bernstein, we have all this great music and that's our nuclear device. And also we have, you know, the story of his career that can be this wonderful B story, mm -hmm. making it sort of interesting and in what's public and what's private, which is, you know, always interesting with these these folks. But like the marriage is what's universal. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of flipped the script on how we were going to approach. And what we wound up with was not only a script that the, the, the kids really liked, you know, in a movie that the kids love, but something that I think is universal and much more emotional than anything I ever uh, was after. And so um, and so that's been incredibly educational. And again, it speaks to Bradley's vision. And it's I mean, it's true. We watch a lot of these um, more, quote unquote, traditional biopics. and 
you're just seeing a larger than life figure. Maybe you can relate to some things that they're experiencing or the feelings that they're going through. But other times it's, I mean, it's that person, it's their story. Um, with Maester, I do feel like because there are these internal struggles, both with professionally with your career, but also personally with, with marriage and love and just trying to find yourself in that space. I think that that definitely sings to a lot of people, at, just like how Summer sings to, to him yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, something that I also really uh, enjoyed with the film is obviously you get black and white and color, and that signifies the kind of the two different time periods. But I think the style of writing also very much signifies that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, in that first half, I in the black and white half, I feel like, yeah, as you kind of said, he doesn't know his footing. And so sometimes the writing seems like his mind is kind of going a mile a minute. And then that uh, color portion, he's much more mature. Maybe he still hasn't grown up all the way, <laughs> but um, he you know, it, it slows down in its pace. Was that, um, I'm assuming that that was all very intentional on your Bradley's yeah. end. Yeah, I mean, look, Lenny, um, when, when you when you listen to tapes of young Lenny, when you, when you read about his life, he was a whirling dervish, right? And he was a whirling <laughs> dervish throughout his life, but really when he was young, I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 it boggles the mind how much he was doing. Yeah. You know, like, you know, he wrote, you know, he wrote, you know, two symphonies and, you know, four or five ballets and like, you know, and, and an opera and, you know, uh, three, four musicals, right? All from 25 to 40. I mean, it's a vast, you know, it's, it, you know, it's it just, just the amount of work, right? And this is all while he's traveling the world yes, conducting, you know, on a regular basis, like it's hard and then doing television. And a lot mm -hmm. of times he's one of the pioneers of television. I mean, mm -hmm. remember in the fifties, it's very early days for television. He's one of the first who's on there doing the omnibus specials and taking over the young people's concerts. And like, and so the amount he was doing was extraordinary, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, and so and he's, you get the feeling that he just never stopped, like, no. <laughs> constantly going, 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 going. And moreover, like there's an ebullience and a incredible, you know, this sort of like brightness that burns from within. And so we wanted the pacing of everything to feel that way. Right. And it's like it is. It's how they talk. It's how, you know, and, and Bradley even took it even further than we had on the page in terms of like it almost feels like a 40s movie at the time. <laughs> it does. His and, vocals. And, and and so, you know, some of that is on the page and some of that is how he and Carrie are playing it in this sort of wonderful way. And it's rare that he slows down in that first half. In fact, like, you know, that wonderful moment of them in the grass where, you know, she says, you know, you're not moving and, you know, are you, are you okay with it? And he's like, no, I love it. You know, but does he, right? Like he's caught, you know, and, and the next thing we know, he's up and running up to David Oppenheim and then running away with Aaron <laughs> Copeland and her, and then they're running into the musical theater. Like it's, and, and moreover, like, you know, because it was in the past, we felt there was a lot of magical realism in my first drafts, most of which we got rid of, but we kept a little bit right for that those moments in the past where it feels mm -hmm. like oh you cannot not only is it moving very fast but you can engage in this sort of magical um you know magical realism 
Whereas once you get into color and once you get into the, you know, and there's almost a switch, right? Right in the middle of the of the black and white section when they're married and when they're together. And, and first there's a switch in the walk with Oppenheim where it's just silent. Mm-hmm. And then he has this quiet moment with Felicia where, you know, he first says, you know, Summer, you know, Summer doesn't sing and, you know, sings to me that, you know, sings no more. You know, Summer, you sing to me, sings no more. Um, and then and then even then you hear this, you move from the jazz of St. Louis Blues, which he famously conducted with Louis Armstrong at, at, at Lewinson Stadium. And then it moves into the Adagietto, right, mm-hmm. from from Mahler's Fifth Symphony, right, and, and, which is a much slower, more pensive Right. And even though we have the beauty of the of the of the child and the marriage, like he's showing the child to Aaron, like there's something that's a little, you know, it's not it's not exactly, you know, it's not it's not all is not entirely well in Camelot. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, And then when we go to color. Right. There's still a lot of hubbub around them at the start with the Dakota and all the overlapping dialogue, but it very quickly moves into these slower contemplative, you know, um, scenes where Lenny is at middle age and struggling and Felicia struggling with the deal she made, you mm-hmm. know? And so that is, you know, very much purposeful. And then what I love is then what Bradley did with, you know, the aspect ratio, which is one, three, three throughout the movie, you know, so you start with one, three, three in black and white, and then you go to one, three, three in color. So you have your first transition and then your last transition is after she dies and suddenly you're wide, mm-hmm. right? In your, mm-hmm. your, in your standard one, eight, five. And to me, like, it, it just gives you a different sense of reality that was Lenny's reality after she left where, you know, there's, there's more empty space, mm-hmm. right? There's gotta yeah. be more empty space cause she's gone, you know, yeah. and he's, he's alone, right. In a very wide frame, as opposed to when the life used to truly fill up that frame when it was the two of them, mm-hmm. you know? So it accentuates the, 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 that the fact that he is left, you know, all alone, um, despite how he tries to fill up the whole, that is left when she's gone. So, um, and that's really, again, like, but all of this is really, um, and it's why I think I, I love collaborating with directors, because to me, if you're forging a vision on the page, then, you know, then it, you have a more, you have a greater likelihood of that vision than appearing on the screen, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to when you're just walking off on your own and then you hand them a script and then like, well, who knows what they're going to do once they get yeah. Yeah. set, right? Um, and I've been really fortunate, you know, I've worked closely with all the directors I named, um, and it allows me to sort of participate in the creation of the vision, such that when the baton is handed off and they're and they're off on set, and I've been fortunate at the onset for most of that, but they're really, you know, the director is obviously in charge, um, you know, but, you know, I generally, you know, when I was in set with Tommy, I had almost no notes, because anytime I had a note within three takes, he'd have the same note, you know, <laughs> like a brain by that point. And so that, to me, has been a great joy of of the collaborations I've been able to work on. Um, since you mentioned that in the first original draft, you didn't even bother to get into that latter half of his of his life. As you ventured into that with Bradley, I guess how did you feel going into those those deeper, darker moments? Because, as you just said, I mean, we go through the many negatives that they experienced yeah, in their relationship. Yeah. And then of course, Felicia's illness and, and her death. I mean, those are all tough things to write, let alone to experience. Yeah. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. 
Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. I mean, I would say it was, it was definitely challenging. You know, it was definitely, um, it's dark that 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 back half of his life is pretty dark and and it's it's a little you know raging bull was always a bit of a a a, a, a you know a, a a for us a touchstone you know but it's it's hard these movies that that go so dark you know and and i think it's 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 still um watchable and dare I say even enjoyable because it's such rich material and Lenny is such a rich character as is Felicia, you know, but it's, it's, it's very challenging. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, like, look, those fight scenes are fantastic. Right. Oh, yeah. And those are fun. Right. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, you go to the death and the after the death and it's, it's hard. Right. And, and it's, it's, um, and it's hard because, you know, Lenny was such an amazing, positive force in the world. And we're focusing on some of the more negative parts of, you know, of who he was as an individual. But to some degree, like, you know, it's sort of amazing because I'd been there before with with Neil Armstrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Like in First Man, you know, um, what had been so interesting was, you know, a lot of astronauts, former colleagues of Neil's didn't love that movie because we were exploring how, you know, despite how wonderful Neil was as a colleague and as an astronaut, it was very challenging for the families and very challenging for Neil. And that's what we wanted to explore, you know, and, you know, Anthony Lane wrote this review, like, that's not the way these men were. They were cowboys and they were not, you know, they weren't worrying about their lost children. It's like Anthony Lane bullshit, right? They were men just like you and me, right? Like, and if you lose a child, when that child is three, don't tell me you're not going to be devastated for the rest of your life in some way. Of course. And so, and and what was amazing was Rick and Mark Armstrong really loved the portrait, right? Mm-hmm. And like in some ways, I got a lot more pushback from Don Graham on you know Liz and I got a lot more pushback from Don Graham on how we had written K Graham, even though it was almost a hagiography. You know, compared to I got almost no pushback from Neil and Mark other than like get it right in terms of when the LLTV separates from the, you know, like, like, you know, but the portrait was exact, you know, because I think it it allowed them to see on screen the part that they knew that the world didn't know. And in that way, I will say one of the things that was really rewarding as, a, as, a, as a, a, you know, again, the Bernstein kids didn't love my draft. There was this point where we almost lost the rights and uh, the Bernstein kids, Jake Gyllenhaal had been whispering in their ears. Um, and look, it had been a long time. They'd been working with Fred and Amy and they had nothing to show for it. They'd been they'd had those rights were wrapped up for eight years at that point, And there was no movie. And even though I was working with Stephen, we couldn't tell him about it because Stephen was committed to West Side Story and we didn't want anything to mess that up. Mm-hmm. But I was very confident because Stephen had liked my script script and we sent them the script and they were like, this isn't our father. And it was in part because it was a lot closer to just a celebration of Lenny as opposed to exploring the darkness. Yeah. And one of the things Bradley, when he came on and by focusing on the marriage, you know, and he insisted that we continue to work closely with the kids, which we did throughout, you know, even in posts, he showed them multiple cuts and got all sorts of notes, you know, but, uh, you know, 
I think the, one of the reasons they're so happy with the film is because it shows a side of their father that the world didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the side of their father that was, you know, you know, some of the havoc he, he, he wrought on their personal life, um, which is a harder side to depict, especially of an icon, you know, but, you know, I think it, that's what's universal and interesting. Um, and so I will say it's, it's one of those amazing things that like, I didn't want to go there. It was challenging to go there. I loved Lenny and, you know, it, it was not necessarily what I would have led with, but seeing how the kids reacted to it, you know, it was clear like, oh, this is sort of what needed to be out there, mm-hmm. right? Because the rest of it is all already out there, right? Mm-hmm. You want to see Lenny being wonderful, go watch Omnibus or go watch the young people's concerts. It's there, you know? Um, but like, if you want a three-dimensional portrait of what it, what he what he was, who he was, and, you know, some of the challenges that, you know, cropped up as a result, like, you know, that's what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. It very much reminds me of um, also, which came out last year, Priscilla and that portrait of Elvis Presley and the yeah, yeah. side that we didn't get to see. I, as a viewer, I enjoy getting those more personal in-depth looks because we can see all the newsreels about people fawning over all these famous people and icons and have the same things regurgitated. But if you actually take a moment to consider who were they behind closed doors, yeah. I think that's always the much stronger story to tell. That's that's what we we're trying to do. So that's <laughs> nice to hear. Of course. Um, Josh, I know that I have talked your ear off already for so long um but i just want to thank you so very much for for filling me in a little bit about you know the making of this film i i i really really enjoyed it so i appreciate it this time with you i appreciate you taking the time and uh nice to chat so thank you likewise and best of luck these next crazy few weeks for you (laughs) thanks very much take care are you itching to move no no actually at all I'm thinking of a number. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Nine. No. Five. No, you have to think. (laughs) I'm trying to. to. It's two, darling. Two. It's two. Like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a pond. Welcome, everyone, to the Next Best Picture podcast, where we are speaking with Matthew Liebetik, the cinematographer of the new film Maestro. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Very excited to talk to you. You've been one of my favorite working cinematographers for many years, um, and this film uh, is really quite the achievement with how great it looks. I wanted to start off by asking, you know, this is the second film you've worked on with Bradley Cooper after A Star is Born. And I read in an interview, you referred to him as one of the most relentless people you know, and saying that because of that, you knew you wanted to work with him more than once. What is it about that relentlessness that attracts you to him as an artist? Well, I mean, anytime you are, you're working with somebody who, um, is moving at a certain miles per hour and and pulling from every facet of their lives and their research and their being to create something you're drawn to it if you're a creative person you're drawn to a creative being who's pulling energy out of everything to create what they're creating and bradley is somebody who has um 
is mastering the 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 skills that allow you to be a person that works with the uses the camera the right way uses um it obviously performance the right way design color palette um visual choices as well as sound choices as well as musical choices you know all those things they're all equal you know all the great filmmakers those aspects are all equal so cinematography editing production design costume design they're all critical and he's relentless at making sure everybody's on the same page so that singular vision that he has is communicated and did your working relationship differ at all from your work together on a star is born i mean it was it was different in the sense that here's the biggest difference on a star is born he'd show up ready because it was jack main he rolled out of bed and whatever he had to do it didn't take a whole lot of time as soon as he arrived he put his hat on and we were ready to shoot i mean he was ready to shoot now maestro very similarly he'd be ready to shoot he'd be ready to be on camera when the crew arrived the difference <laughs> For him and for us too, because we felt it is that he would be up six, four to six hours ahead of time, putting on prosthetics and doing all the special effects, makeup, whatever prosthetic body pieces he had to wear. I mean, there was a lot of commitment on his end. When that's another reason why I call him relentless. It's like those things, those obstacles, those mental and physical obstacles don't get in his way. You know, he's he's relentless, and that that the one thing that sort of carrot at the end of the stick. He's gonna get that carrot, you know. He's he's really he's he really um, and he leads by example, you know. So you're talking about somebody who directs from within a scene as an actor, and um, not only directs actors from within a scene, he's also uh, you know he'll turn his head so it's not on camera, and he'll bark out an order to me or bark out somebody uh, a, a direct in for a camera operator, you know. And it's just this fluid orchestration of filmmaking that's very cool. And, and how had he grown as a filmmaker since the star is born? I mean, for me, I think he's just so he's so um, he's always had an editorial mind. Hmm. He really has a great sense of how much of a shot he's going to use and when he's going to cut and like the instincts to move the story forward. Clearly, he he's already, he already possessed the ability to discern the kind of performance, the tone he needs to tell that part of the story at that time of the film. What is really impressive is how much he's grown as a, uh, in terms of his knowledge of camera, you know, and being able to communicate to me as a cinematographer has like, it's just, it's an evolution of our relationship. He could really communicate focal lengths and the feeling of a long lens versus a wide lens. He could communicate movement, um, the heaviness of a dolly versus the floating aspects of a Steadicam. These are all things he can describe and, and not in the same way I describe them to say my technical crew, he's describing it to me. So there's a very special language in that because he's, he's taking the language of a writer and bringing it to my world. And then we're, you know, we're able to have that common ground now. Um, not that we didn't have that on the first film, but we were just getting to know each other, but he's, and, and he has now subsequently worked on, you know, he's such a sponge. He learned so fast. You know, he, you know, he's worked with Guillermo del Toro and Paul Thomas Anderson. So, you know, walking, I mean, those two people definitely had an influence on me working with him on Maestro. So, you know, I think that that's, um, if, even if I just said that, that's probably the greatest <laughs> in terms of propelling his evolution as a filmmaker. Yeah, it, it it's really a, a great journey, I think, that he's on. And how far in advance of 
production did he bring you on to this film? Was it right after you finished work on the last one? No, I mean, it, it, I don't think it had been official that he was going to do it at that point, at the, at the end of A Star is Born. It wasn't until, I, I seem to remember around the time of our award season run with A Star is Born, where he, he, he was sniffing around the story of the Leonard Bernstein. And uh, he brought it up to me very early. I mean, we probably talked about it for four or five years prior to shooting it. Maybe four years. I'm not sure exactly, but it was it was a number of years. It was over three, and we uh, we spent that time sort of you know bouncing. Well, he was basically bouncing ideas off of me and bouncing off ideas off his other collaborators, and um, writing with uh, Josh. And uh, we would take that time. You know, the biggest concern at the moment at that time was how are we going to articulate Leonard Bernstein, how the hair and makeup was going to work or the makeup specifically. So we did numerous tests. So we had a lot of time because we had the, the four or five year period. We did numerous tests with makeup to try to get it right and to compensate, the, you know, get the right combination of his body and uh, prosthetic makeup and whatever that went into that. We also tested multiple formats we use that time to test multiple formats whether it be film black and white digital color digital anamorphic spherical uh you know when we have a proof concept of all the things that we shot because we would actually shoot scenes from the script and there's a there's a there's a proof of concept that exists in the world that's it's basically a, a quilt of formats and ideas and it's it's very cool like and we you know from that we were able to sort of you know, he was inspired. You know, we did we did the scene in the film. There's a scene where um, Felicia takes Lenny on their first night together, takes them into this theater that she's working in. Yeah. Well, we shot that in a scene in Los. We shot that we shot that scene as a test in Los Angeles, and um, it was one. I think it was the first time we shot black and white film. And that from that one scene shooting on a stage at Raleigh Studios across the street from Paramount, we just. It was magic. It's like we had shot Airy 65. We had shot all the digital formats, every camera, you know, Sony, Red, Alexa. I mean, uh, yeah, Airy, Alexa. It wasn't until we saw the black and white film that we just get hit over the head. And he, especially, he's just like, this is the way we're going to shoot the beginning of this film. So that's sort of, uh, but that was like, it was a process. So I, I guess the go back to your early question, I was brought on very early. And it allowed us to actually marinate yeah. on some of these ideas. Yeah, I've seen in another interview that you you said it was there was something inexplicable about the black and white film stock that you ended up using. What 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 was it exactly about that that stock that just made the both of you go, yeah, this is giving us what we're missing. You know, it was, I don't know if it was the stock specifically as much as it, maybe it's the stock specifically, but I would say it's film in general. It's just. Mm. Film has a tonality to it. It's a it's a it's a separation between each shade of gray, that is unspeakably film, <laughs> you know. And it's it's it, it could be matched in digital with great effort, because you could put a black and white image up on a monitor and you could, and you could uh, just desaturate the color and you could tweak it a little bit in terms of gamma, and get it to a point where it's got similar tonality to a piece of black and white film. But you're not gonna you're not gonna get there. And if you can get there. There's been successful, really successful ones. Don't get me wrong. I think Ida, Ida was a successful one. So was um, uh, Roma. 
both very successful black and white movies shot on digital. But Sorry. I believe, uh, at least in Roma's case, well, I'm not sure actually if it was, but I think that, you know, both of them came very close, but I know that both of them took a lot of time in post-production to get that right. And a lot of study in film was basically the, is your control for all the experiments you do to try to get to your control, you know, and for us, that already exists. If I expose it a certain way, I get a vibe. If I expose it another way, I get a different vibe. So that was kind of the chief. It just simplified it, streamlined it. And that's kind of the, that was kind of the idea. Um, a maestro, the shooting of maestro and the idea of maestro, is it's, it's a very naked, naked and open um, look at a person. And um, we approached making it the same, same way. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, one specific scene um, in the film, which is the big scene that tends to become everybody's favorite talking point about the film, which is the scene that you shot in uh, Eli Cathedral, where Leonard Bernstein conducts uh, Mahler's Second Symphony. And I know that you shot, the long shot of him conducting was all done in one take. But there are also these insert shots of the or orchestra, close-ups of the musicians, some of Felicia. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering what was your guys' thought, was the thought process always that there are going to be these insert shots? Or was it initially that it's just going to be one take and then that changed? No. I think it was initially, I mean, we actually shot the inserts before we shot that long take, oh. you know, um, going into, I think we did two days of shooting. We, we prepped for about a week. We had two days of shooting and we had shot sort of the preamble to the scene um, the day before and various shots of, you know, the music and the performance. But by the end of that day, we ended up shooting. Um, we knew we wanted to shoot the orchestra with what we were hearing was so absolutely beautiful because we were recording it live. So they were actually playing. It's a London Philharmonic. It was like this, you know, I'd never experienced anything like it. I was so close. So for us not to put it on film, it just, it just, you know, again, we're reacting to what's in front of us, which is the way Bradley loves to work. And I love working with him because of it is we're reacting to what's happening before us, whether we put that before the camera or that thing is happening before the camera, we want to photograph it. So we had to photograph them. So we shot some of that, some of the stuff with the orchestra at the end of the first day. So when we got to the second day, you know, Bradley had a night to think about what we had done and he came up with this long take. So what you see in the film is basically a combination of those two days of shooting, you know, but it, was, it wasn't planned as a long take. It was planned differently completely, but it was a reaction to what was happening around us that created the scene that you see in the film. It's great. I love the, that insight. Um, I know we're coming up at the end of our time together, but I also had to ask because as a former dancer, I'm obviously quite enamored of your work on Black Swan and also some of the scenes in A Star is One where you really get part of the audience members alongside performers in really unique ways. And you do it again in this, in um, the sequence uh, from... I think it's actually the ballet version, Fancy Free, that eventually became On the Town. Has your perspective on, or point of view on dance changed at all the more you film it and the more you work with choreographers? I feel like I, I get, I've gotten better at it. You know, um, 
I, I took leaps and bounds. I mean, I had done, I, you know, I came up through the world of music videos and we had some choreographed dance, but there was a lot of hip hop and urban stuff. So I had worked with choreographers in the past, but not until Black Swan did I work with somebody like ben, Benjamin Malipier, who, you know, as long as I showed him the size of the camera and the camera operator and the space I needed, then he would create space for it and and it was effortless it's like the camera wasn't there that's the kind of the idea and i think that anytime you're transported into something whether it be in on fancy free or in black swan i think uh what's important in the or the stage performances for that matter of a star is born it's about subjectivity and being in there so that you the audience can be transported to the place yeah that's what makes those scenes so memorable thank no, you thank you <laughs> Thank you so much, Matthew, for, for speaking with us today. Congratulations uh, on your work on the film. It, it's really gorgeous to look at. I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks for the time. Enjoy. Yeah. Good luck with the podcast. When does it come out? Uh, thank you. I don't know uh, when exactly we'll we'll post it, but um, we will we will be in touch with everyone. Okay, right on. I'll know when it when it posts. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. It's good to meet you. Very good to meet you as well. Thanks. All right, man. Thank you so much for listening to Emma Sassett's interview with the co-writer for Maestro, Josh Singer, and Dan Baer's interview with Matthew Libatique, the cinematographer. Both are up for your consideration at this year's Academy Awards, where Maestro was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.